0: Finance and History, the EABH podcast, looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history. Follow us on BankingHistory.org. Welcome, everybody. My name is Carmen Hoffman. I'm Secretary General of the European Association for Banking and Financial History, EABH, and this is Finance and History, our podcast. Today, I'm going to have a conversation with Hassan Mouassin who is an assistant professor at the Hong Kong Institute for the Humanities and Social Sciences and the Department of History. Welcome.
1: Yeah, hello. Thank you for having me.
0: Today, we're going to talk about foreign banks in China. To be more precise, foreign banks and global finance in modern China, banking on the Chinese frontier, 1870 till 1919. So basically, the basis of our talk is your book, And this is about the activities of foreign banks in China in this mentioned time period. It's the first era of financial globalization, where international banks provided infrastructure for international payments, capital flows, and so on. And a big part of your research focuses on the German-Asian bank, the Deutsche asiatic Bank, the leading German bank operating in China, which was established as a joint stock bank in 1889 in Shanghai. And from what I take from your book, the big question you're asking or trying to answer is, these banks in in that period, was that foreign economic invasion or were they filling an institutional void? But before we start to discuss this question, very briefly, what's the setting? I mean, it's the time after the first Sino-Japanese War. China is defeated, remittances are due, and the country is more open to foreign financing options than probably before, which is the time we're talking about.
1: The main period the book covers is sort of from the 1870s to World War One. Sort of on the European side, yeah, as you say, this is kind of the first era um, of financial globalization. You have um, capital flows emanating from Europe, capitals like London, Paris, uh, Berlin, flowing throughout the world and uh, basically investors in Europe are trying to find investment targets abroad and you know this is also a time when multinational banking is 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 developing quite rapidly bankers also expanding abroad so this is in a sense the setting uh, in Europe probably one addendum to that is that of course Germany you know just after unification is a new rising power and uh German bankers are kind of keen to um catch up with particularly their British uh, colleagues who are basically the leaders in international finance with Berlin as the new capital of, of this new Germany. They, they want to compete. On the Chinese side, you basically have on the one hand side, a growing foreign trade in part due to what we normally call the quote unquote opening up of China. So that means through the opium wars and the opening up of treaty ports. Now, the kind of amount of foreign trade that China is doing, particularly with the West, is rising quite rapidly. And at the same time, the Chinese state is interested in reform throughout this period, particularly towards the end, sort of the years, the decade or so before World War One. And uh, that leads, on the one hand side, to a demand for being able to, of course, remit money internationally. If you want to do foreign trade, you need to have some way of remitting cash back and forth or money back and forth. And on the other hand side, for these reform efforts, particularly after the sort of 1890s, or in the 1890s, um, there is an increasing interest in actually tapping foreign capital markets to raise capital to do things like railway construction or or other rather costly reform projects. And foreign banks or the foreign banks that are focusing on the book, and specifically also the Deutsche asiatische Bank, this German-Asiatic bank that I look at as my main case study, they come in here because on the one hand side, they provide these sort of branch infrastructure that make it possible to have international remittances. And at the same time, they also become the kind of mediator between the capital markets in Europe and the officials, uh, particularly at the Qing court in Beijing, but also local officials elsewhere, because these officials are particularly in the beginning, not particularly knowledgeable about how capital markets work and they kind of need a mediator. And the foreign banks are kind of coming in here um, as sort of uh, uh, intermediary institutions. So I think that's sort of the setting, particularly in the sort of four and a half decades I look at in the book uh, that we are dealing with.
0: That sounds like exciting times, right? Like full of opportunities to invest in a newly opening economy, but wait, before we we dig deeper um, into your story, which are your sources? W- where did you find your information, and, and which archives did you explore for your story?
1: Sure. So a lot of this actually started with the um, with the Deutsche Bank archives in Frankfurt, where I found uh, eventually actually quite a lot of files related to, to German banking in uh, in China at the time. I also used diplomatic archives in Germany, of course the uh, Foreign Office Archives and the Federal Archives in Berlin, One other banking archive in in Germany and um, also a banking archive, the HSBC archive in in the UK. And in the UK, I also used uh, diplomatic archives. That just reflects the fact that these uh, these bankers work very internationally. And so, for example, there was a lot of cooperation between uh, British and German bankers. On the Chinese side, uh, I mean, that was much more difficult because uh, Chinese archives and Chinese sources uh, are more difficult to come by in a sense. But it was very important for me to also kind of provide sources for the Chinese side of things, and so I, um, worked in Chinese archives in mainland China and Taiwan. Then I used a lot of these kind of source collections of personal papers, um, of Chinese officials to also kind of to get the Chinese perspective. And then I was also lucky to, to do some work in, in Japanese uh, libraries because, um, um, well, Japanese, uh, bankers and financiers were also, and politicians were also quite interested in the Chinese market at the time. And so there are a lot of very useful, uh, reports. And so in the end, what what I really did was kind of multi-archival research and tried to pin together a picture that doesn't just show one particular perspective, but try to kind of get different perspectives and kind of properly represent the different actors that were involved. What was most important for me here, I think, was actually to bring in the Chinese perspective, because I think that is uh, something I want to show in the book, that the agency of Chinese actors was really important if we want to understand how foreign banking in China actually worked um, at the time.
0: No, in, indeed. I think that's one of the, the really unique points about the book, that you have the, the two or even three perspectives on, on the same matter. But then, obviously, that's a real big barrier for many researchers from the West, because you have to read and and understand Chinese at a very good level. So you conclude that possibly exactly because of of this reason as well that the specific role foreign banks played in the internationalization of chinese finance and china's financial connections to the global economy until today they remain absolutely understudied so how is that and and why do you think that is other than the language barrier
1: i think one of the reasons why there has been relatively little research that looks at both the foreign and chinese side is simply is, is also that um and this kind of uh, paradigmatic view that foreign banks were part of Western imperialism and seeing them primarily from this kind of perspective, uh, that has kind of dominated uh, a lot of the scholarship. There are several reasons, but this kind of insistence on the narrative of imperialism is, I think, um, is probably the most important reason.
0: Right. And you're set out to revise it, right? Because you argue that the DAB, so the Deutsche Asiatische Bank, and other foreign banks acted as intermediary institutions that financially connected the Chinese economy to Western economies and facilitated its financial integration into the first global economy. So respectively, the foreign banks helped Chinese development because they filled an institutional void. But let's take a step back first. So tell us a bit about the German China Bank. How got it started? What was its daily business?
1: Sure. So I mean, so the first attempt uh, to actually um, establish a a German bank in uh, East Asia, China and Japan, more specifically, was actually done in the 1870s by the Deutsche Bank. But that failed for different reasons. Most importantly, the fact that um, the Deutsche Bank couldn't really deal with the silver fluctuation uh, in the silver price during this period. And after that, John Baker's kept being interested in China, but, um, it took. Sometime until actually uh, the Deutsche Ezeritsche Bank was established. Um That happened, as you say, in, in 1889. So the German bankers in the 1880s became really interested in uh, investing uh, in China, particularly in railway construction. They kind of wanted to leverage the power of the German capital market to um basically funnel investments into China. So they first tried to kind of do this through intermediaries or through partnering up with British banks. But um, if you actually wanted to do this successfully, you needed to have a base on the ground in China to make deals. The German government then comes in and kind of accelerates things somewhat. And they also insist uh, very much on the fact that all German banks that are interested in China should go together uh, and and form one bank. And so w- what then happens in 1889 is basically that um uh, the Deutsche Aussage Bank is established. The German banks that are involved represent, you know, really what we could call German high finance. As a result of that, uh, that there is actually... Uh, really no competitor for the DAB from Germany. They can then uh, wield the power of the German capital market in their dealings uh, in, in China. And the main interest in the 1880s uh, and the plan really had been to mainly use the bank to funnel capital from Berlin or from the German capital market into China. But the problem was that these kind of deals don't really work out. In the beginning, in the early 1890s, it's really the, the Sino-Japanese War in 1894 and that is the turning point because of that the foreign bankers then have to also kind of have a, a second leg to stay, stand on. And that's, uh, that's then basically trade finance. I mean, they later also um, issue their own currency, which was also uh, quite common for foreign bank- banks at the time. And, you know, they take in deposits. They do all sorts of, um, kind of general banking business, but in particular, what apart from the, their role in. Facilitating investment in China uh, with German capital. The main other pillar of their business is really trade finance. Them main, and not just financing trade, but necessarily between China and Germany, but also between uh, China and other Western capital markets.
0: And well, that's interesting. Like, uh, so they issued their own currency. What what would have that been? The, the Chinese marks, or what was that?
1: So it would still be denominated in Chinese currency. So oh, okay, it would basically say. This bill will give you, I don't know, five Shanghai tails or something like that, or five silver dollars. Um, that, that would basically uh, be how, um, the, how it would work.
0: Okay. Thinking about it in terms of profitability, did that work out to be good business?
1: The huge expectations that had been connected with extending German banking to uh, China uh, didn't come uh, come to pass uh, because the, you know the expectations to, towards the Chinese market were always much bigger, sort of in the imagination of of, of bankers or foreign business people than um, the actualities that they found on the ground. But the the German bank did okay. I mean, I, in the book, I compared kind of with a few other German overseas banks, and in terms of dividends, uh, they're doing okay. Uh, and also, they rather quickly kind of uh, become uh, become successful in terms of um, managing to issue Chinese loans in, in, in Berlin. And they really become a leading bank uh, in this particular regard. From the side of the um, German government, the problem that arises is that they want these German bankers to mainly act in the national interest in that sense. So they want them to support German commerce. They want them to um, extend credit in that way, do business in that way. And uh, German diplomats in China become really unhappy with the fact that these German bankers are only interested in profit. That then leads to kind of conflict.
0: I can imagine there is a a strong sense in Germany to have government supported initiatives to find business in in the rest of the world, I think until today. Yeah, that's very interesting. In your book, the subtitle is um, Business at the Chinese frontier. But what, what do you mean by that? And and how is the treaty system of the 1840s relevant to that?
1: Um, sure. So, I mean, the reason why I use, uh, I guess, the frontier as a heuristic device is, of course, I draw on the work of other historians that have kind of looked at frontier spaces, including the Chinese coast. And I like to think about the China coast, which is what sort of geographically, I mean by when I talk about the frontier as a frontier, because it was kind of a space where you have all these different actors. Some are Chinese, some are British, some are French, some are German, all kinds of different nationalities meet, all kinds of different institutions meet. And therefore, it's kind of a very fluid space uh, through which then you have uh, flows of capital and commodities and so on. And it's why I felt the frontier uh, is kind of a good way of thinking about it. And I also use, use the concept of the frontier bank, uh, to make this clear, because I think these foreign banks, in a sense, also were rather ambiguous. They had kind of both foreign and Chinese staff. They operated not just in China, but they also had branches in Europe. And they were also very much um, dependent on cooperating with Chinese actors all throughout. So I felt conceptualizing these kind of ambigu- imb- ambiguities, both in terms of the space that we are in, but also in terms of the actual institution that we're dealing with. I think thinking about this in terms of the frontier seemed to be quite useful to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, actually, conceptually, it very much is, right? Because if we think of China, it's a huge geographical area, but the actual operating space we're talking about is like the port cities or a certain region at a certain time. So I think it's important to, to be very clear about that. Can you explain a little bit what was or still is special about the treaty ports and the treaty system that was established in the 1840s?
1: If we think about imperialism in general, uh, we usually think of it in terms of uh, often you know, direct colonial occupation of, of large swaths of lands. And of course, in the case of China, that didn't happen. China was not fully colonized or anything of that sort. What these foreign powers basically did was that they would uh, carve out small spaces, usually around ports, because that's where they felt, you know, hopefully trade would be able to take off. This particular uh, treaty port would then come under foreign control, and you know these foreigners would run it as a as a municipal government, uh, most famously in Shanghai, where you have the international settlement and it has its own police force and all you know its own bureaucracy and so on and so forth uh, importantly, uh, I think from the perspective of Chinese banking foreign banks um this kind of was a space uh, where which was as i said not under Chinese law, uh, so institutionally legally, it was actually sort of a western construct. you had these Foreign banks, but also foreign businesses that flowed into these uh, treaty ports and primarily uh, operated in these treaty ports. But you also had a lot of, you know, Chinese people, Chinese uh, business people, businesses doing business uh, in the in these particular treaty ports, in the concessions, in the foreign concessions. Having just talked about the frontier, I mean, in a sense, these kind of treaty ports also become a place where um, foreign and Chinese actors, foreign and Chinese institutions, capital, and commodities meet. Chinese modernization efforts, a lot of new ideas, uh, technologies and uh, institutional patterns and structures come into China through the treaty ports.
0: I agree. I mean, these are um, in particular given the long time in which this special exchange, if you want to put it that way, in this area happened makes them very uh, special places for doing business until today. And I mean, there have been other cases in history, right? The the Portuguese empire was organized in a way as well that the Portuguese influence mainly was at the the main ports or in in the countries they were reaching with their boats at the ports. They did not really go to to conquer or to to try to influence the entire geography. I think from that point of view, that's, you know, very interesting as well for very recent. news and recent things that are happening in China. I mean, you are in Hong Kong now. You know that much better how much um, the the Treaty Port of Hong Kong still is very special, or if you want to call it that way. So you said before that one of the main reasons as well that the German government and German um, banks started to settle in China was they were very interested in, in railway finance. So it was their vision that they would do good business with building a railway, building physical infrastructure in China. But you conclude actually that the Chinese government in the end managed to negotiate extremely favorable conditions for financing their railway. So in the end, the business was the best for the Chinese government. How did that happen?
1: I mean, I talk about a, a particular case, which is uh, the Tianjin-Pukou Railway. Tianjin is basically an important port in North China. It's basically Beijing's port, and Pukou is in southern China. And the, the whole purpose of that railway was to connect north and south China. And the interesting thing about these negotiations for this particular loan to finance this railway, which is eventually financed with British and German money, uh, is that they go on from the 1890s until uh, 1908. It takes a very long time to actually conclude it. In this particular case, uh, the Chinese, I mean, the negotiations with the foreign financiers managed to really get uh, very good uh, conditions for the floating of this particular loan. I mean, the crux of this all was always that the foreigners Uh, Because they had certain prejudices towards the Chinese, they didn't want to leave um, the construction of these railways in Chinese hands. They wanted to have as much control as they wanted. And they also wanted to always um, have, ideally, uh, some source of revenue under foreign control that could be collateral for the loan. And uh, in the case of the railway, this actually often was uh, then done in a way that the uh, foreign railway was supposed to be itself uh, became kind of the collateral for these loans. And the Chinese didn't want that. They wanted to have as much control, of course, as possible. And so in the case of this railway, by kind of um, using the competition between different financial groups that were interested in building railways, uh, the Chinese become very adept at negotiating with these foreign financiers. And they basically push them really to the brink in terms of the, the conditions. So in case of the Tianji Railway, for example, I show in the book that not not only do the, the Chinese basically gain control over the railway during, you know, in terms of constructing it and running it, but also in terms of the collateral, in the end, income is used that is not under foreign control. The big problem for investors in in Europe was that they didn't understand China or whatever revenues the Chinese government might have. And so the Chinese understand you just give them something, basically. It doesn't really matter whether this is in the end really used to repay the loan or whatnot. As long as basically the paper that the bond says uh, that, you know, there's some sort of collateral, they are happy uh, to to basically invest. Because Chinese bonds actually were quite popular uh, in Europe at the time. So the big turning point is the 1911 revolution. Uh, when the Qing government kind of falls. But in the years before that, the Chinese become quite adept at um, getting good terms from the foreign financiers for things like railway construction.
0: That's very interesting, right? Because if I understand that correctly, what you're saying is, so the German idea, and, and that is something that is, is still in a way um being used in different places in the world was to to build the railway and um, take part of the collateral, probably keep a part of the railway because, of course, you would hope then that part of the collateral would be used to own a share of that railway. But you completely turn around that picture that you painted in the beginning where the the coming in of the foreign banks was painted in a way that the Chinese were the, the victims of an imperialistic movement but what you're saying now sounds a bit much more like okay then the foreign banks came in and the chinese were very good at learning how to access these different uh, possibilities of funding and how to how to really take the most profit out of
1: them right i think my point in the book in particular was to take us away from this idea that China, the chinese were just passive there was nothing they could do it was, they just had to do the bidding of the foreigners and I, I don't see that in the sources you know the foreign bankers were very much dependent on chinese actors and chinese Agency and the Chinese often had the upper hand and had more leverage. It's not always this kind of one-sided story of the exploited Chinese actors. I kind of just wanted to show that they just didn't just do the bidding of the foreigners. They kind of tried to use the situation to their own advantage.
0: I mean that that's good. You know, like in in life, more in history, nuance is very important when we when we look at history. So take us a little bit further. So you spoke about the 1911 revolution. So what happened and um, what then changed after World War One?
1: Sure. So just briefly, I mean, the 1911 revolution is a very important turning point in modern Chinese history. It basically brings to an end 2,000 years of imperial rule. And uh, what happens then basically in 1911 is that um, you have sort of a revolt of a particular army unit, and then it turns into a short term, a civil war between the old ruling dynasty and sort of new Republican forces. Uh, and uh, I kind of show that, you know, both sides wanted to have foreign capital uh, uh, and, and foreign support from from the foreign banks and the foreign banks basically uh, withdraw that uh, to, to make sure that the civil war doesn't go on forever. Uh, and um, then they again play like an important role in actually um, solidifying the new uh, Republican government that comes in in 1912, because again, the government is out of money. And uh, it's the foreigners that basically bankroll this new government. And sort of from a public finance, foreign capital perspective, 1911 is important because because of the increased political risk, then China is basically not able to access foreign capital markets that easily. As for World War One, I, I mean, World War One is kind of, certainly for the Deutsche Deutsche Bank, is a turning point because uh, China in 1917 declares war against Germany and the, the German bank is basically liquidated. And so it never really um, recovers uh, from that. But I think also more broadly, it's a turning point in terms of foreign banking uh, in, in modern China. I mean, my book kind of ends with World War I, Um, And it's only really in the kind of uh, conclusion that I talk a bit about what happens thereafter. Um But basically, the main reason really that, that foreign banks were so uh, successful uh, in the pre-World War One period was that there was like an institutional void in the Chinese economy. Uh, you know, you didn't have a certain type of financial institutions that was needed and the foreign banks then can fill that. But what happens then, starting around World War One, and then certainly in the 1920s and 30s, is that Chinese Banks come in modern Chinese banks. I should say that are modelled after foreign banks uh, and after Western banking sort of practices institutions, and this kind of institutional void that the foreign banks had filled uh, in the years before one shrinks more and more, and and modern Chinese banks can fill this increasingly. Uh, but then of course you have uh, World War Two, and then you have um, the Communist Revolution in 1949, and so then foreign banks are pretty much. With a few small sort of exceptions, are 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 kicked out of China, and uh, they only come back after China's reform and opening starts in in the nineteen seventies.
0: Right, and now we jump to today's world, which you mentioned as well in your conclusion, when you say that, like, we're coming full circle now with the One Belt One Road initiative, right? And so my question is: Do you think is China already the dominant player in the global financial system? Following the FT, there certainly are in the business of bailouts, granting more billions in bailout through exactly the Belt and Road Initiative than any other um, lender. So they say it was $240 billion of rescue loans between 2000 and 2021. What do you think about that?
1: No, I don't think China Chinese banks are already sort of the the, the, the uh, absolutely you know, most important or dominant player in the global financial system. And I think that has... Well, has that, there are many reasons for that, but I think one of them certainly is is the question of currency because um, the internationalization of the RMB is not quite um, we're not quite I think where Chinese banks and the Chinese government would um, would like it to be. Um, but if I say full circle, is, of course in the conclusion, uh, that is simply because if I sort of compare today with the the period that I look at. One of the main problems that um, where foreign banks came in was that China became very much part of the global economy, but it didn't have financial institutions that could actually connect China to the global economy financially. I think that's one of the roles that these foreign banks that I talk about play. Over a century ago, Chinese banks were certainly not global players, certainly not if we think about it um, yeah, in terms of the global economy at large and so on. Today, it's it's clearly the opposite. Banks like the Bank of China and so on, you can very commonly see them in in financial capitals um, around the world, and they are very much the Uh, important players. And of course, that also has a consequence for the foreign banks and their workings in China today, because of course, they are there. But their role is much more circumscribed and much smaller, I think, than the period that I kind of look at.
0: Right. So what's next? Where's your research headed from here?
1: The next project that I'm working on now uh, is kind of the, uh, the history of the Chinese electrical and electronic appliance industries uh, sort of from the late 19th century up to the present. So, uh, I mean, there will still be some some finance in there, I'm sure, but um, I'm uh, I'm moving uh, more towards sort of manufacturing commodities uh, and so on.
0: Okay, so there's another big project uh, coming up as well. And do you have a, a favorite history or a favorite financial history book?
1: There are probably two I can sort of think of. Um, I mean, I've always... Um, Very much uh, enjoyed uh, Youssef Kassi's uh, work. Um, I've learned a lot about, you know, Western banking uh, from his work and particularly the the, the book uh, Capitals of Capital that he kind of writes about the different uh, sort of international financial capitals has been really useful and is wonderfully written as well, I think. Um, The other recent book I can think of is a a colleague of mine, Austin Dean, um, who teaches in the United States, and he wrote a book called China and the End of Global Silver, and um, that's sort of a great book that looks at uh, more in detail about, on, on currency and currency reform in China and how kind of China grappled with, uh, with how to kind of reform uh, its own currencies.
0: Okay, thanks so much for the recommendations. Perfect. Thank you very much for presenting your work to us. This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent international. Non-for-profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at (laughs) BankingHistory.org.